0: Proverbs 10. Look with me at verse number 14. The Bible says, The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied from himself. I'd like to speak to speak to you this morning on the subject of the backslider in heart. If you would join me as we pray and ask the Lord's blessings on the message today. Dear Lord, we come to you now in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, for the songs that we were able to sing today. Praise him, praise him, Lord, what a wonderful hymn, and you certainly are worthy of our praise. Thank you, Lord, for the men and singing about that fountain filled with blood. And we thank you, Lord, for the cross of Calvary and all that you have done for us. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the church, Lord, the privilege that we have to gather here in a congregation today. Lord, to open up the Word of God. And Lord, as this message goes forth, we ask your blessings upon it. Lord, uh, we pray that you'd speak to hearts and help hearts here today and help me to speak this word faithfully and boldly, with compassion, with courage, with strength. Uh, God, we pray that you'd just bless it, Lord, because without your blessings, Lord, it's just going to be a message, and we don't want to waste your time or ours. And so we pray, Father, that this time together will be spiritually profitable to one and all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The backslider in heart, you know, kind of interesting. I thought about this, and I've never actually preached a message entirely to my knowledge or recollection on the backslider. And I'm going to say a few things here by way of introduction about the term backsliding, but I thought often as I was preparing for this message, I should have preached on it a long time ago because, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately i feel like kind of an expert on the subject not because i've dealt with so many backsliders but rather because i've had to deal with myself for the last 56 plus years and uh, i know a thing or two about backsliding unfortunately i wish that i knew a whole lot less about it the forms of the term backslide appear 16 times in the bible exclusively in the old testament Uh, All of the times that this word or the forms of this word appear are in the books of Jeremiah and Hosea, with the exception of this one passage of Scripture that we just read in Proverbs 14 and verse number 14. The term, and, and, and by the way, if you are familiar with Jeremiah and Hosea, you know that they are prophets of God during times of Israel's apostasy. And it wasn't a time of revival in Israel. It wasn't a time of blessings. It was a time of apostasy and, and God's withdrawn blessings, God's cursings, if you will. And Israel was suffering because of that. They were getting ready to go into bondage if they didn't repent. In fact, Jeremiah was a prophet that God called him and he said, I want you to go and I want you to preach these words to Israel. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be ashamed. I want you to tell it like it is. But I'm going to tell you right up front: no one's going to listen to you. Now, I, I you know, when we preach, when we witness, when we hand out tracts, we hope for success. We hope for results. We'd like to see people's hearts and lives touched and changed, and people get saved and people get right with God. That's that's the hope. When we study and labor, and when we pray, and when we go and we do, and all these things, we hope for results. But Jeremiah knew beforehand that no one was going to listen to him. I have a lot of respect for Jeremiah, and you know, Jeremiah wasn't like Jonah, who went to Nineveh and he didn't want to go. And and God, he, you know, it's funny. Jonah knew that if he went and preached, that they were going to repent. He didn't want them to. He was so bitter toward them because of how they had treated uh, the the Jews and the Israelites that he didn't want them to repent. He wanted God to judge them. And I think about that and how that, uh, you know, Jonah just didn't even have the right heart, but he had the truth and he had the calling of God. And he went to Nineveh and he said, get 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And the whole city, including the king of that city, they repented in sackcloth and ashes Jonah wasn't happy about that, but you know, Jonah's heart wasn't right, but his message was. Jeremiah's heart was right and his message was right. In fact, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. You can't say that Jeremiah, just because he knew that he wasn't going to get any results, that he said, okay, well, I'm not going to get any results. I'll just go through the motions. I'll just do it to, you know, check it off my list. Okay, Lord, I obeyed you. No, Jeremiah Put his whole heart and his passion and his compassion into his prophecies and into his preaching, knowing full well that they weren't going to repent. Why did he do it? Well, we know why he did it. He did it to obey the Lord, because he was a prophet of God. Wouldn't you agree that God needs more men today? Men that will just say, we're going to preach what the word of God says. We're not going to do it. We'll do it for the benefit of men, but we're not doing it for. Men. But the term backslide comes from four different Hebrew words. And all of these words, although they are different, they all carry the same exact meaning. And the term backslide has something to do with a falling away, a turning back, an apostasy. Webster's 1828 Dictionary adds this term to it. It says, "...to turn gradually from the faith and practice of Christianity." The term in the Old Testament is always speaking of the nation of Israel collectively. But once again, our text here, while it's a little different than Jeremiah and Hosea, our text here is speaking to us as individuals, not Israel collectively. Most Christians are familiar with the term backslide. In fact, much of the world is familiar with the term backslide, but very few truly really understand what it means. I remember Brother Runyon saying years ago that he grew up familiar with the term backslide and to him it meant if you were backslidden, you had lost your salvation. He grew up in a free will Baptist church and they taught that if you sinned or if you turned away from the Lord, you lost your salvation and you had to get either saved again or if you you could be saved and put your trust in Christ and then turn away from Him and end up going to hell. That's what he thought that it meant. I've also heard preachers say something to this effect. If you don't feel as close to the Lord today as you have ever felt in the past, then you're backslid. Well, the problem I have with that statement is that being backslid or not being backslid is not just simply about feelings. I I heard of a man who had chosen an alternate lifestyle, a homosexual lifestyle. And he made a statement. He said, I'm closer to the Lord than I've ever been. And so I scratched my head and I go, how could you say such a thing? You may feel that way, but according to God's word, you are not that way. It cannot be so because the Lord has some specific things. And listen, I'm not saying that this man can't repent and get right with the Lord. And I'm not saying that just because he has a lifestyle that is stigmatized among Christians, that doesn't mean that if you're sitting here and you have a different sinful lifestyle, you don't have any right to say that you're closer to the Lord than you ever have been if you're living in open sin that is contrary to the Word of God. And so having said all that, it it also reminded me of this little story that I heard. A young boy asked his dad... Dad, what is a backslider? His dad replied, Well, that's a person who leaves our church and joins another church. Uh, the boy said, Well, then what do you call someone who leaves another church and joins ours? Well, that son is a new convert. <laughs> As I have studied and researched this term backslide for the last uh, two or three weeks, I, I, my attention was drawn to... a a sermon or a writing by a preacher that no doubt many of you have heard of by the name of Charles Finney. Charles Finney listed 32 evidences of a backslider in heart. And while I read that, uh, I would have to say that most of what he had to say was certainly convicting, and yet I would have to say in all honesty that if what Brother Finney wrote was true, then I'd have to say honestly that I've never been right with God. And further than that, I've never met someone that wasn't backslidden. I mean, he listed 32 things, and I guess as I read it, at first I was, it was kind of convicted. It's like, oh man, then I'm backslid because he's listing some things that, you know, we all struggle with in our Christian life. I, I say we, I can't necessarily say you're exactly like me, but I think I can be honest in observation that the Christian life just really doesn't come easy for anyone. And for people who say that it does, they're probably missing the boat somewhere along the lines. Maybe they've become self-sufficient. Or maybe the Christian life to them has been a series of checkboxes, and hey, as long as I've got my six check boxes all you know, I've got my act in, in order, then I must be right with God. I, I tell you what, being right with God is a whole lot more than just a series of checkboxes. Brother Finney listed 32 reasons, and I'd have to say if if he was right and true... And by the way, he didn't necessarily list a lot of Scripture verses. In fact, I can't point to any that he did in those 32 points. He's basically talking about it from his perspective. Well, here's the problem that I have with this. And, and, you know, us preachers, I've had to learn... Of course, I, I have to admit... I don't feel like I've ever been one of these preachers that, like you've probably heard, that can overpower you with their will or their strength of personality. Uh, I've sat and I've listened to some preachers like that that would have a very intimidating persona, very confident in what they say. And yet the fact of the matter is, is sometimes that can create some confusion to those that maybe are a little bit more timid in their spirit. You know, men of God are men of God, but at the same token, we've got to recognize that if what we're saying is not the truth of the Bible, then it's not the truth at all. And so I wanted to kind of add what I've been saying about Finney is, yeah, it's a little critical because I think that Finney took the Christian life and he viewed it from his own perspective and what he saw of himself as being pretty much sinlessly perfect. And there's a problem with that. And here's the problem that I have. James chapter 3 and verse number 17 says that the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Listen, I don't think that any of us should have this attitude that, hey, I'm right with God, and if you're right with God, then you're going to have to be just like me. I don't think that that's a wisdom that comes from above. And so by way of introduction, I would encourage all of you to beware of preaching and preachers that intimidate you by their personality or overpower you with their will. Listen, folks, the Holy Spirit works through His Word and draws us to him like a shepherd who speaks to his sheep rather than like a herdman who drives the cattle. Listen, there's an element of sweetness even when the Holy Spirit convicts. Listen, if you come across preaching or somebody says something, and I'm not saying that every preacher who does that, that that's what their intent is. You have to be able to discern is the Holy Spirit speaking to me because there is such a thing as false guilt. The devil is the accuser of the brethren and he will drive you and he will make you feel hopeless. And I think really the point that I'd like to make here is that the devil will overwhelm us with hopelessness. But when the Spirit of God convicts us, he will speak distinctly about some area in our life. He won't say, you're bad, like some parents will get frustrated with their child. You're bad. Well, what does that mean? The child needs to know, what did I do that was bad? They don't need to hear that they are bad. They need to hear that their behavior is bad. Correct your behavior. The devil will just make us feel bad, but we won't know what we need to do in order to become good. When the Spirit of God speaks... He speaks distinctly, and with that, he always offers an element of hope and encouragement that, hey, I've done wrong, but there is hope that I can get this turned around and get right. Whitney Cross was a historian who analyzed some of the revivals back in Finney's days and some of the revivalist movements, and while I think I'm all for movements of revival, but I also know from reading history that all that glitters is not gold. And sometimes we look back at some of these great moves of God and we don't recognize that within six months to two years that many of these great movements of God not only fizzled out, but a counter-revival came in and there was that sense of hopelessness. And Whitney Cross said this, he said, a gospel that works for zealous perfectionists one moment merely creates tomorrow's disillusioned and spent super saints. You know, we've got to be careful. And listen, I'm not saying that we need to lower the bar of Christianity here. I believe that the bar needs to be at the level that the Word of God says. Anything, any area in our life that is short of being like Jesus Christ, well, we need to continue to grow And allow God to work in that sanctification process. But we cannot do it by our own willpower. Hey, we can, with our own willpower, recognize something that the Lord convicts us of. And we can, you know, even Paul told Timothy, he said, If a man will therefore purge himself of these. If God speaks to you about something, and you know that it's wrong, it's clear, you have no doubt about it. Then yeah, you can, with your own will, God's not going to do it for you, right? Right? He's already done his part. He's explained. He's helped. He's given the grace. And now we just have to yield or to respond. God will work in that. But listen, if we feel, if anything in our area in, in our life that is not 100% like Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that we're backslid. It means that we're just like the Apostle Paul who said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So the devil's going to beat you up and discourage you and make you feel hopeless, but the Spirit of God is going to speak to us, point out our sin, point out our failures, but just like a loving heavenly father that's not browbeating his children, he's not saying, Oh, you don't live up to my expectations. He said, Look, son, this area in your life is not right. Here let me help you. Let me show you how to do that. Let me do this with you. That's the way that the Holy Spirit works. And oftentimes I think preachers get frustrated because people aren't responding to the Word of God and so they try to add some force to it. They try to add a little bit of volume, a little bit of venom maybe to make it even worse. And many of the messages that we hear on backsliding is very often just that preacher trying to wake people up and to recognize that they're backslidden. Personally, I believe if we are putting out the truth of the Word of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit is here, He's fully capable of convicting our hearts and letting us know that we're backslidden. I don't believe that He needs that much of my help as a preacher. And so what exactly is backsliding according to the Bible? The first thing, as we take a look at some of these usages in Jeremiah and Hosea, the first thing I'd like to say is it is a spiritual infidelity. It's a spiritual unfaithfulness. In Jeremiah 3, verse number 8, it says, And I saw when for all the causes whereby, watch this, backsliding Israel committed adultery. I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. Now obviously, physical adultery and physical fornication are contrary to the Word of God. They're horrible sins that God condemns. But in this passage, God is referring to Israel as playing the harlot spiritually speaking. They were worshipping other gods. They were following the ideals of man. They were following the philosophies of the nations around them. They had forgotten God and they were no longer trusting Him and obeying what His Word says. Well, when I think about that, it reminds me that the church is called the Bride of Christ. We have been espoused to him, and as Paul said, he wants us to be presented to Jesus Christ as a chaste virgin. Second Corinthians 11.2, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul is using a metaphor, an analogy, and he's saying, look, I've preached the gospel to you, I've espoused you to Jesus, and listen, if I were to take you, the bride of Christ, and walk you down the aisle and hand you to Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, I want you to be a chaste virgin. I want that white wedding dress to not be a farce or a fake. I want it to be true and pure because you are in character truly pure. When I think about that husband-wife relationship, I think about how that every relationship has some kind of expectations. And I agree with Brother S.M. Davis that expectations can truly be the ruin of relationships. But it's not the, the inclusion of expectations, it's the problem of having selfish expectations or unrealistic expectations. That's where expectations create the problems. And when you think about a husband-wife relationship, a good, strong, loving relationship is when we love the other person so much that the rules and expectations are really no problem. Listen, if you love someone enough and you get to learn what they expect out of you, if you are madly in love with them, you you will end up exceeding their expectations you'll be faithful to them you won't look at another man or a woman because you are completely in love with your spouse the way that it's supposed to be you'll be faithful israel was being unfaithful to the lord oh i guarantee you that some of them they were bringing their sacrifices to the to the tabernacle or to the temple they're going through the motions they never declared that, hey, we no longer are god's chosen people. they never said anything like that, just like america you you can still read on our money. it says in God we trust, is that really true i, I I'd have to say absolutely not, if we are honest with ourselves, we are not a nation that we could honestly say in God we trust maybe maybe one day in the past we there was Many people like that, but we're no longer that in substance. Israel was probably saying, you're still our God, but the way that they were living was just like the heathen nations all around them. And the Lord looks down and He says, you are a bunch of spiritual adulterers. Consider Ephesians 4. I talked to the men about this yesterday morning. Ephesians 4, verse number 30, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. We think about backsliding in the New Testament, even though the term doesn't appear, there is a backsliding in the heart that's completely relative to the New Testament Christian. And when we backslide, it is a grieving of the Holy Spirit of God. What is grief? It is the emotion experienced by a loss. When we backslide, when we our heart turns away from the Lord Jesus Christ, when we, we, we get into sin or we stray away and we become apostate, what's going on? We're grieving the Holy Spirit of God. He lives inside of us. And like Brother Runyon was taught in his background growing up, they said if you're backslidden, then you lose your salvation. I find it totally totally providential that in this one statement that the Lord tells us about grieving the Holy Spirit, he also mentions whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. What he's saying is you're not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to lose Jesus as your Savior. You're not going to lose God as your Father, but what are you going to lose? You're going to lose that fellowship with him. That relationship with Him. A child of God, I remember, you know, I, I grew up and in my high school years, I lived uh, some, I lived a sinful lifestyle. And I can remember feeling a grief on the inside. I can remember laying awake at night after being out with my buddies and just laying there and having a hard time going to sleep with my own thoughts and feeling guilty and convicted. And, but it was, it was mild compared to what it was after I got right with. I mean, when I turned my heart over to the Lord as a 19-year-old young man, I experienced a relationship, a fellowship with the Lord that I had never experienced as a young man. I hadn't experienced even before my sophomore year in high school when I went the way of the world as a as a young teen and in my uh, early adolescent. I I didn't experience the reality of God the way that I did in 1986 when I turned my heart to the Lord and the Holy Spirit became real. He started changing my heart and my desires and my motives. And uh, I don't remember many times as a child weeping over what Jesus had done for me, but I can remember many times, and even today, thinking about all that Jesus, the fact that God would forgive me, I can think about that and focus on that, and I can start talking to the Lord about that, and it'll stir my emotions. I'll begin to weep, and I'll begin to thank Him and praise Him. Why? And, and when I sin today, it creates a different level of grief than it did before I got right with the Lord. Why is that? Because when you've experienced, the more you've experienced His goodness, and the closeness of that relationship, then the more that you feel it when that relationship is broken. You know, sometimes as you know, husbands and wives. There are husbands and wives that I believe that get they grow apart, and they've just kind of decide, well, we're just going to live our separate lives and just live under the same roof. You pay your bills, I'll pay my bills. This is how we'll work together. And it becomes a relationship of convenience rather than a closeness that they're truly sharing their lives together, their dreams and ambitions and their fears and their sorrows and their joys where we are as one like the Lord wants a husband and wife to be. I'm concerned that too many Christians in their relationship with the Lord, really live the same way. It's like, well, I've figured out I'm not rejecting Jesus. He's He's still my bridegroom. But I've kind of resolved that I'm going to live my life and he lives his life and we'll kind of figure out how to cooperate in all of this. Listen, if you've ever truly been right with the Lord and in unity and in fellowship with him, when that fellowship is broken, it's a severe thing. I mean I can see why someone would feel that they've lost their salvation when that fellowship when that grieving of the holy spirit when the holy spirit is quenched is that sweetness and that unity and that fellowship is broken. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 23 Paul says and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly Notice that word holy is not H-O-L-Y, even though that would be a relevant term, but it's holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, believer, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. We are perfectly righteous and clean. We have received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. As far as your relationship with Him is concerned, you know what the hardest thing to do is? To pray or read your Bible right after you've failed, right after you've sinned. It's like, I, I, why would God want me to talk to Him? Because we know how we are. In a husband-wife relationship, we can offend the other and we can say, hey, I'm sorry, and... We can say, oh, I forgive you, but wouldn't you agree it takes a little bit of time for that feeling of that broken fellowship to overcome it? Sometimes it takes 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes 10 days. It just depends. I think sometimes it depends on the offense, and sometimes it depends on how close that we are to the Lord. The closer to the Lord we are, the more that we'll be forgiving and long-suffering and understanding of one another's sins. The further away that we are, the more that we'll be prideful. It's like, well, you hurt me, you offended me, and I'm going to make you punish. And we all have an element of that. But why would the Lord want me to have fellowship with him when I know that I failed? Well, listen, I have to I have to appropriate the blood of Jesus Christ. First John chapter one says we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. My basis for fellowshipping with the Lord is not my performance. It is based on the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that, brothers and sisters. The devil will try to keep you away from the Lord. He will keep you from the thing that we need the most. Listen, when you've failed, when you've sinned, that's when you need to draw nigh to the Lord. And that's when it's the hardest to do because of our pride. When you don't feel like the lord is hearing you you have to trust him by faith if his word says that he'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness you've got to believe that and quit believing your feelings and certainly quit believing what the devil has to say god wants us to be clean and pure he wants our relationship to him to be faithful with fidelity, with purity. Stick with God. Stay close to Jesus Christ. Don't follow the world. Don't let your flesh control how you live. Let the Holy Spirit work in your life. So certainly backsliding is a spiritual infidelity. Number two, backsliding is stubbornness. Hosea 4.16 For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Listen, if you've, um, if you've ever been around cattle, you know as well as I do. I worked at a dairy farm for several years in my teenage years. And uh, I'll tell you this about heifers. They're a pain. They are. They are a pain. Now, they're very valuable. They have a lot of potential. I mean, listen, a farmer's success, the more heifers you have, then that's the future of the farm. So they're valuable, But listen, they are a pain and a hassle. They're a lot of trouble. Why? Because they don't understand what's going on. If you've ever milked cows, and boy, the first time that a heifer uh, gives birth to a a, a calf, and the the first time you bring them into the milk barn, boy, we learned early on, you put that heifer in between two of your biggest, oldest, most faithful cows. Get get her squeezed in there between those two big cows where she can't move. Those two big cows, they know what to do. You know, some of these dairy cows, you you could literally count. We milked 150 to 160 head of cows twice a day, obviously. And you know that there were some cows, those old cows that had been, you know, you've been milking them for years. They came into the milk barn The same time, every single milking. You could count it. I mean, you'd milk on this side of the pit, that side of the pit, and you knew that old Bessie, on the fourth group that comes in, had six on each side. You knew that Bessie, on the fourth group on this side, was going to be cow number two in the stall. And it would happen every single time. And if it didn't happen, it was because... Something happened out there in the corral that messed things up. Maybe a cow slipped or something got things out of order. But on a normal milk day, Bessie was going to be right where she was supposed to be. But those heifers, man, you'd have to go out there and you'd have to get them in. And when you got them in, sometimes you'd have to put kickers on them. This little, uh little tube that you'd put around the flank there and up over the back and it would almost stop them from kicking. Boy, they'd create a ruckus. Why? Because they didn't understand what was going on. It was their first time. They didn't understand. They didn't trust. They didn't know that, hey, the farmer, the milker, was going to take care of them. They weren't going to cause them any harm. In fact, they were going to relieve a lot of pressure that they had because they had milk. So they were also going to give him some grain. It was a good experience for the heifer. But the heifer didn't trust and didn't understand. Sound familiar, born-again believer? Sometimes we act like that stubborn heifer and we kick and we fuss we complain. Why? Because we either don't understand or if we do understand, we don't trust that the Lord is going to do what He said that He would do. Jeremiah 8, verse number 5 Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit, they refuse to return. Backsliding is not only infidelity, but it's also stubbornness. Number three, backsliding is defined in Scripture as self-justification and self-reliance. Jeremiah 3, verse number 11, And the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel, watch this, hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Now, the Lord doesn't have anything good to say about either Israel, the northern kingdoms, or Judah, the southern kingdoms. He didn't have anything to say, but He said that Israel, the northern kingdoms, they've justified herself even more. That's what we end up doing in our backsliding. You know, just a few minutes ago, I was talking about the infidelity, the unfaithfulness of a marriage relationship. Have you ever heard some of the nonsense that people say to justify an adulterous affair, if you want to call it an affair? I mean, I've heard some pretty crazy things that justify adultery. Well, we just grew apart. Well, we just don't love each other anymore. Well, my needs weren't being met. Or some would even say, well, it just happened. What all does that mean to justify a horrible thing? You know, adultery is a sin against God, but it's also a horrible sin against our spouse. It's a horrible sin against ourself. In fact, Proverbs said that he that committeth adultery, he, he, he lacks understanding Uh, Paul said to the church that fornication, when we commit fornication, we sin against our own body. We sin against ourself, if you will, our conscience and our hope. And what happens is the conscience becomes so defiled in our backslidden condition that we begin to justify, thinking, well, I deserve this sinful behavior. How preposterous that that is to justify when... listen. When it comes to our Christian life, is there any fault that we can find in our bridegroom? Has Jesus Christ ever failed to meet one of our needs? Has Jesus Christ ever failed to love us unconditionally the way that we are? Has Jesus ever done anything that was anything less than perfect? No, He's been perfect. And so when we stray away from Him and we start justifying ourselves, well, you know, I just needed this to relax a little bit because I worked so hard. Well, you know what? Uh, my life, I've just had a rough week. I think I'm just going to not go to go to church and worship because I deserve a little bit of a break. You deserve a break from Jesus? Can 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 you hear what we're saying? That when we're saying that, you know, I don't want to go hear the Word of God. I don't want to go sing God's praises. I just need a break from that. Hey, something's wrong with that relationship, and we are justifying it. And and then not only the self-justification, but the self-reliance. Listen to what Jeremiah 49 verse 4 says. Wherefore, glorious thou in the valleys, thy flowing valley, O backsliding daughter, that trusted in her treasures. You know what the biggest problem in America today is? We don't need God. What do we need God for? We have the Federal Reserve, right? All of your investments are, they are insured. You ever went to the the bank? I know a lot of times we don't go to the bank anymore. We do it all online. But remember when you used to go to the bank counter and there would be a plaque there that said that your money is insured by the full faith and confidence of the federal government? And I would read that and I'd go, that's terrifying. That's supposed to comfort me? <laughs> you know, while they are, you know, overspending every single second of the day by billions of dollars, uh, that's supposed to comfort me? What do we need God for? I mean, we've got everything. We've got credit, we've got the government. Listen, if you don't want to go work, well, the government will send you some money, they'll take care of your basic needs. And all of that, america that's probably the majority of the problem in America today is that we're not going to turn to God until we begin to need God. But you know, the reality of it is, is the problem isn't just in our government. We see it all too often in churches. We see it in families. We see it in individuals. What we do is we figure out ways to achieve our desired outcome. You know, if you've got a family problem, got a problem with your children, you don't have to follow Bible principles. You just manipulate your kids to the desired outcome. After all, we are smarter than God, right? We know more about the Lord. I mean, we're going to give timeouts. We're not going to do, do it the way that God said to do it. Why? Because, you know, we have psychology and we've read books and we, we know human nature way better than the Lord. In our family, you know, we don't necessarily live according to the principles and the character and the integrity of the scripture. We do what we want to do and we figure out how to skirt the results and the consequences. And you know what, in this day and age you can skirt a lot of the consequences. In churches we have a church problem, somebody's not doing right or somebody's sinning. What do we do? I mean we play you know, we play management games with it. And we start schmoozing this person and we start prepping this person, and we do all this little behind-the-scenes stuff to manipulate the outcome. We don't fix the problem. We don't address uh, the leaven in the lump. We just simply try to hedge the outcome. And you know what? We have leadership books. We can read books by great pastors who have pastored great and large churches, and we can learn how to deal with problems. Listen, a person can manage a company There are pastors that will manage a church the same way. But what are we saying when we try to hedge the outcome rather than just simply do right and let the chips fall where they fall? I'll tell you what we're saying. We're saying, in fact, we can win. But we're saying, Lord, we really don't need you. We got this handled. The problem is we win with the outcome, but we lose in the long run. Because the Holy Spirit, who is wanting to really fix the problem, just steps back and says, well, you know what? If I'm not needed, why would I hang around there? And folks, in your home, in your personal life, in your church, in your nation, when we get to that point to where we are self-reliant rather than reliant on Jesus Christ, we basically said, we don't need you. We got this. Does that not sound like the Laodicean church age that said, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing? And the Lord is saying, and thou knowest not that thou art poor and wretched and blind and naked. You need me back. Jesus standing at the door and knocking, trying to get back in. You have Jesus wanting to get back into your life. You have Jesus wanting to get back in your family. You have Jesus wanting to get back into your church. Listen, if you are self-justifying and self-reliant, then certainly I can say by the authority of the Scripture, you're backslid. You need to start trusting Him and relying on Him. And then finally, before I get to the conclusion, number four, I just want to mention consequences. I'm not going to give you details of consequences because the Bible says in Jeremiah 2.19, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. There's the consequences right there. Your own, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own way. I, I, don't, I don't need to tell you the consequences of your backsliding. God's going to tell you what they are. Your own life and your own heart are going to tell you. You're going to feel Empty. You're going to feel void. You're going to feel frustrated. Why? Because the Spirit of God all this time is saying, I want fellowship. I want closeness. I want you to give me your heart. Give me your trust. And the whole time we're saying, no, that's too uncomfortable. I like the way that I'm living. Lord, if you would just take, you know, kind of make my life better, but let me do my own thing. The whole time the Lord's saying, that's not what I saved you for. I saved you so that You could give your heart to me just like I gave my life for you. There are consequences, and I could go down the list. You know, the prodigal son, he wasted his substance. He had it made for a while until he ran out of resources. And what happened? He ended up in the hog pen, and he got so hungry that he's looking at the husks, that that he's feeding the hogs, and he's saying, You know what? Those look pretty good to me maybe i'll just chow down on some of those and at that time he the bible says he came to himself and he realized that you know i got i got hired servants at my father's house they're just working for him and they've got it better than i do listen there's consequences even if god doesn't strike you dead with lightning even if god doesn't take you behind the woodshed your backslidings and wanderings have severe consequences And it's potentially going to destroy your life. It'll certainly waste your life like the prodigal did. And so in conclusion, Revelation 2, verse number 4, the Lord says to the church at Ephesus, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Notice it says left and not lost. I know I've said that before, but I think it bears repeating. Leaving the Lord is what backsliding is. When we leave our first love, when we lose the sweetness in that relationship, when the honey is gone out of the honeymoon in our relationship with the Lord, the Lord says, I've got a problem with you here. You need to get it back. You need to return. There is hope for the backslider. You know, I I, I can't speak for you, but... Whenever my heart strays away from the Lord, if I'm ever honest with myself, usually I can pretty much remember when it happened, when my relationship with Him cooled off a little bit, when I started taking Him for granted. You know, I've talked a lot about the marriage relationship here today, but you know, that's what happens is, I mean, when everything's new and fresh and shiny and we're getting to know each other and... I mean, we're young and we're in love and all these things. It's just, it's wonderful. And it's easy then. But then we get familiar and we find out, you know, with our relationship with the Lord, we don't find out his faults, but we find out ours. And then, you know, the the newness wears off and we start taking the other for granted. And then we start drifting. That's exactly what happens, but there is hope for the backslider. Jeremiah 3, verse number 22 says, Return ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Hosea 14.4 says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. There is hope for you backslider. There is hope for me when I backslide because the Lord wants us when we return. He's not going to beat us over the head. He's going to receive us and He's going to heal us and He is going to restore that relationship and His anger will be turned. He will love us freely, not just out of duty. I've had times where I've been upset at someone. It's like, well, I'm supposed to love him, so I'm just going to do it because I have to. That's not the way the Lord does with us. He loves us freely when our heart turns back toward him. Our opening text said Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. You know what, folks? You don't have to be filled. You don't have to be filled with your own ways, but rather you can be healed. But first, you must yield. I read a story that is an amazing story that happened over 250 years ago in Suffolk, England. A young man who was raised in a godly Christian home came under the influence of a gang of young people and began living a sinful life. This young man had great hope. He was an intelligent man, and his mama wanted him to become a great preacher someday. His dad died when he was eight, and instead of going off to, um, to Bible school and becoming a preacher, he, had to, he was sent to London to train to be a barber. One day, while he was with this gang of youth, they decided that they were going to go break up this gospel meeting that was being preached by the great preacher George Whitfield. This young man heard Whitfield proclaim, Who hath warned thee to flee from the wrath to come? Those words echoed in this young man's heart. The wrath to come, the wrath to come. They sunk in. And he said that after hearing those, he wept for weeks and could think of nothing else but his sin and the free forgiveness that he was told about through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, this young man got saved. And after his conversion, he had a great desire to hear and to preach the word of God. He traveled all over England, hearing some of the greatest preachers of his day. But sadly, sadly, he lapsed back into some of his old sinful ways and had some great periods in his life of spiritual instability. One day he was riding in a stagecoach and a lady sitting next to him was reading and singing to herself from a hymn book. She asked the man if he had ever heard of the hymn. The hymn was, Oh to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the god i love take my heart o oh, take and seal it seal it for thy courts above who was the young man that was sitting next to her it was robert robinson the man who wrote the hymn come thou fount of every blessing man began to weep And because of the encounter with this young lady who was infatuated with this great hymn, God once again broke his heart and he got right with the Lord. He returned from his backslidings and he got right with the Lord and went on to preach some great messages and have a great impact for the Lord. I can relate to Robert Robinson. Perhaps you can relate to him as well. There is hope. For the backslider, if you'll yield, if you'll return, he'll receive you back.